This is the 966, episode 96. Isn't that, you know, the 966, episode 96? Yeah, 966, episode 96. That is a lot of sixes. <laughs> it's a lot of sixes and a couple nines. Richard, no. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, the analysis on this show is, you know, first rate. We should right. just, there are a couple we, nines and a few sixes. We should just close it up right there. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Yes, exactly. Great episode, Richard. Richard, how are you? How's everything going? Great. Always fun to be here with you. Yes. Hello. My, my buddy from across the border. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We are on the uh, on two sides of the District of Columbia. I have a Maryland driver's license now, which is is still very tough That's to swallow. Be weird. That's kind of super weird. weird. But it lets me drive like a total jerk whenever I want. So uh, there's some advantages to that as a lifelong Virginian. Yeah, you exactly. wouldn't do that. You know, nobody in Nova would do that. No, no. But when in Rome, you know, um, Richard, <laughs> we have just such an awesome conversation coming up this week for episode 96. We will be welcoming on Mr. Amr Sheikh, CEO of PepsiCo Middle East. In just a few minutes, just it's fantastic. Speaks for itself, but it, it really is great. It was everything we, you know, we 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 think a lot of PepsiCo and the things they're doing and how they represent in terms of U.S. corporates. It was just a blast, and and uh, it it's really fun to be honest when you get to engage and and visit with these folks, and they turn out to be really decent, nice people. Yeah, absolutely. And, ex and extraordinarily capable. Um, you'll hear his story very shortly into the interview, Pakistani American living in Saudi Arabia. Actually, he lives in CAFT, Richard KAFD, which is really cool. So just it's a great story. And we should mention as well, we had Raghad Fatadin on the program almost a year ago, it seems like at this point, Richard. Yeah. Um, and she is with PepsiCo Middle East now. Uh, she was very helpful in introducing us as well, but also she was a wonderful interview. And, and so just a shout out there, it's it's amazing how many connections and little inroads there are all over the place, such as fantastic. That was a good interview. And she she's doing, uh, I think, corporate communication outreach and that sort of thing. And I think is involved with the Tamakini program, but at the time was very focused on the Y20. Um, uh, so, yeah, she was she's a fireball. Right. And her Watch own that startup episode. Well. She, she is yeah. dynamic for sure. She's, she's wonderful. Um, and also her own startup as well. So just yeah. this, the 966 is really cool for that, Richard. It sort of just brings in all these different voices and, and perspectives. It's just so cool. So anyway, we're having fun over here. Um, and Richard, we've got a lot of another great week, another uh, great series of pieces of feedback. Um, very exciting. Richard, we have already totally eclipsed our Max, our uh, previous high number of viewers for a month, which was set in April. So before this episode even launches. So we really oh, appreciate nice. this growing, this growing audience that we're building and we're hearing from more and more people. So it's just cool. And uh, it's very motivating. Richard, uh, good feedback. This actually was for two weeks ago um, from Trimax. He notes because we, we discussed richard that uh, sometimes the full episodes take so long as videos to render and upload that it's sort of impossible to get it out on time he says if it takes too long to render the smaller videos are still great yes you can everybody watch um these sort of segments as individual snippets on our youtube channel as we've noted before you also get to see our beautiful faces in the process yes. so um yes. he uh, suggests um healthcare is a true cornerstone of any successful nations and 
uh, any successful nation, excuse me, and companies like Sanofi uh, and the recently launched Lifera are central to this. Side note, will you be talking about Lifera in a future episode? Um, thank you, Trimax, for that. I think the answer is yes, Richard. We pretty much cover everything. So um, that's a great suggestion. We're going to look into that. It is a good suggestion. The problem with Trimax is he has he's he's a, he's a, a fountain of good suggestions. And we'll, we're trying to keep up, by the way, the problem is no problem with Trimax, but typically really good commentary with good suggestions about what's next. What about this? And which is fun to get that kind of, uh, awesome. uh, you know, investment from listeners. Yep. Yep. Really cool. Um, this one from Doc Portland. This was, uh, Richard, we got I should also notice this, note this. We don't often share feedback we get on much older episodes, but it's weird because we get like comments on episodes from a few months ago, a year ago, people discover it on YouTube. To them, it's not old because they're not regular listeners. So we don't usually read it because it's, you know, from six months ago, but Doc Portland said, I went to live when it was in Portland. It was outstanding and fun. Talked with several of the players. So neat. Uh, that's pretty cool. Which you yeah. can do at a live tournament. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And former presidents as well, depending on depending well, on where you are, um, which is super By the way, speaking of that, that's one of the values of this, because, you know, on the YouTube now, there's we're closing in on 400 segment, segments, you know, 90 or this is 96th episode, 95th, 96th episode. Um, there's my there's my my, you know, steel trap brain. We just talked about 96. Uh, but there's close to close to 400 segments now, 370 plus segments now on YouTube and they live forever. And just like, you know, some of them are a year old. Some of them are 16 months old. Um, they were good at the time and they still have value. So, I mean, it's a tremendous resource. Completely agree. Richard, one more. This is from ITA, I-T-A-D-O-F-3. Um, sorry, I, I don't know if that spells something. It's like, it's like the license plate game, Richard, where you're trying to figure yeah, exactly. out what it is. I, yeah, I so. thought you were going to Iditarod, but no. <laughs> um, he says, he or she says, the Paris Agreement doesn't do anything except move money around. You should read it closely before commenting. Uh, thank you for that comment. We welcome all comments, positive and negative. Richard, I, I'm sharing this one um, in part because uh, this person is right. I have not read the full text of the Paris Climate Agreement. I don't know how long it is, but I was interested because he suggested, um, you know, all it does is move money around. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the Paris Climate Agreement. We've had a couple of experts on the program, which always involves prep, and we learn from those experts directly. So um, pretty sure that's not accurate. Uh, so I went in and looked at it, Richard. It does a lot more than move money around. In fact, it doesn't really move money around at all, but just kind of interesting uh, getting a little refresher on it. Um, works on a five-year cycle. It actually was a landmark agreement because for the first time it, it's really binding um, and it brought all nations together. It forced them to come up with their own plans on climate. Um, and of course, Richard, one thing that we missed in that segment was that President Trump got out of the climate agreement, and then President Biden on his first day in office re-entered it. So that's just, it was just kind of cool being like, you know, I don't know as much about the Paris Agreement um, as one might be if they read the whole thing, but I'm also pr quite sure that that's not accurate either. It's also okay to comment on something without reading the whole document. Um, <laughs> with that said, we just sort of mentioned it in passing. The segment was on how 
hot it is in the Middle East. So but um, it, it, it speaks to a problem you probably have in your everyday life is that, that people just assume we're experts on everything. And, and you know, it's a it's a burden. We're not experts on everything. No, we're not. And that's why we have, that's why we invite experts onto the show in part for our own edification, Richard. Completely for our own edification. (laughs) And nobody Um, thinks I'm an expert on anything. Yeah, but um, we're not experts. You know, we're not even really experts on Saudi Arabia because, um, you know, but I'd say on average, we know a lot more about it than most people. I I would say we're conversant. Yeah, you know, we're conversant. As conversant as you can be visiting very frequently, producing the number one newsletter on the kingdom in English for 13 years. I mean, yeah. we're, we're pretty in the weeds, but we're not in the, you know, we're not in the government and in the inner no. circle of the government. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know, and we're just trying to figure it out, and we're trying to add to the conversation about it. So, you know. Anyway. And I guess you, this is the same thing for the, you know, Paris Agreement. Yes, exactly. We weren't there when it was signed and we weren't part of the back room negotiations uh, where people were banging their fists on the table. That wasn't we just read the news reports and the summary and have spoken to some experts. So, yes, we know what we don't know, as they say. So um, but anyway, thank you for the feedback. We do appreciate all the comments we get. You know, we're not looking for just praise. We love praise, of course, but we're not just looking for that. So this is part of the nine, six, six. Virtual Magilist experience, yeah, the experience, experience. <laughs> yeah, six six um, experience. Richard, let's jump in. What's your one big thing this week? All right, uh, you can participate in this because it's a it's a common theme, as everyone knows. If you if you if you read media or anything, that uh, Kylian Mbappe was offered a by Hilal uh, Saudi uh, team uh, Al Hilal. A what was reported to be a $1.2 billion offer was not. What it was was uh, Kylian Mbappe is at odds with his uh, Paris Saint-Germain, you, you know, and, uh, you know, it may or may not play. But anyway, there, but he's, he says he's not going to play for next year. But so the Saudis, you know, spied an opportunity here, offered uh, Paris PSG a $332 million transfer fee, which is insane. But, you know, is is out there and a proposed salary of two hundred twenty one million dollars for Mbappe. It looks like he's going to decline this. Uh, it was a situation where, uh, again, you know, the Saudis were looking. You know, this was an opportunity to 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 maybe, you know, have for, even for only one year, the, maybe the best soccer player in the world, football player in the world. Uh, it doesn't look like it's come to materialize. But, of course, it's sparked all sorts of of commentary and and. Uh, and you know, even NBA players were were offering to come over and and be come come to Saudi for that kind of money. So anyway, it, it's sort of part and parcel with this whole wild transfer season in which Saudi Arabia has been very heavily involved. Um, the, the the purpose of this one big thing is to try and add to the picture of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do, because if you, you, you think they're just trying to buy every, every available football player, uh, but they're really looking at it more organically. And I'm just going to go through the last three months of events that maybe you didn't know about, but are interesting in the context of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do with regard to its whole football ecosystem. So in May, 
the Saudi Arabian Football Federation and the Confederation of African Football signed a landmark five-year MOU to foster growth opportunities for African and Saudi football. So the MOU focused on initiatives around technical and football development, grassroots football, women's football, talent identification, competitions, friendly matches, and commercial opportunities. Also, there are ongoing discussions that Saudi Arabia is, is having with the Confederation of African Football over uh, a $200 million deal to sponsor a new African Super League. That's not confirmed yet, but that's in discussion. So why is this, why is this meaningful? So 60% of Africa's 1.25 billion people are under the age of 25. It's the youngest population in the world. A lot of you know, they love football in many of these countries. It's a it's a tremendous source of talent, and uh, you know this connection with Saudi Arabia has a couple things going for it. One, there's politics involved. Saudi wants to host the 2034 FIFA World Cup. It's also angling for the 2030 Expo. Lots of votes to be had in Africa, so it's good politics. But it's also organic. I mean, if you're trying to build a, a home league and uh, bring in a lot of young talent, uh, connecting with development of football in 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 a, a continent of 1.25 billion people, the youngest you know demographic on earth, is a good idea. Um, that was May in June, which we've we've talked about here on the 966. <clears throat> the uh, public investment fund agrees to acquire 75 percent of three four major clubs. Uh, essentially the Saudi professional league clubs now that Al-Ahli is back in. So the four major clubs are Al-Ahli, Al-Ihlal, Al-Ittihad, and Al-Nasser. Same time, certainly at the inducement of the government, Aramco buys a stake in Al-Qadzia, which is, you know, uh, Aneon buys a stake in Al-Sukur, uh, Daria Gate, a stake in Al-Daria Club, uh, Al-Ula Government, Royal Commission for Al-Ula invested in Al-Ula Club. So, so the, the, the purpose of this um, you know, the, that's the that's the top line thing. You know, PIF invests in four clubs, but at the now at the same time was the sports clubs investment and privatization project, and we've talked a little bit about that here. But what that is is a very is a formalized initiative for sports clubs in general, but specifically for the Saudi Professional League. And the intent to make it one of the top ten leagues in the in the world in terms of football. Um, so this project, you know, sports clubs investment and privatization project, sort of has two parts. One, in the first part, gets approval of investments by corporations and public sector organizations and sports clubs, just like PIF and Aramco and Neom just did. And the second involves essentially privatizing sports clubs starting from the final quarter of 2023. So they're looking to take these sports clubs and uh, essentially monetize them, but also in the course of doing that, you know, establish best practices, you know, have them better run, increase their value. So that, you know, the, the ultimate goal is to, to increase the revenue of the SPL, Saudi Professional League, from 120 million today to more than 248, uh, more than $480 million annually. Raise the market value of the SPL from 800 million today to 2.1 billion. And Lucian, you and I are intimately familiar with the value of franchises today since our Washington football team just sold. Uh, largest franchise price in the history of the NFL, six point, just over six billion. 
So um, awesome, Richard. So it is awesome. excited about and, it. And, yeah. and you know, the, the, the Cretanist uh, guy who bought it in 1999 paid $800 million. So it's a good investment. And Richard, we've mentioned this on the show, and I'm sorry to just jump in here, but um, yeah, he ran it into the ground. He literally destroyed the franchise. It was yeah. couldn't get couldn't get seats or couldn't get tickets to the game. Now they are shutter, shuttering parts of the stadium. We don't need to go on about it, but he ran it into the ground and still, you know, six hundred, you know, six hundred percent up his money. So, anyway, can, yeah, yes, you're right. Agreed. Yeah. So, so let's let's just before I get to July. Just to rehash, you've got the the top line thing. You know, Saudi Arabia is buying every football player. But then in 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 May, um, you know, they have a tie up. They have a very interesting and promising tie up with uh, the Confederation of, of African Football. Really, a, a tremendous hotbed for potential talent. In June, they invest and have uh, corporations invest in key uh, key teams with the intent of professionalizing everything and moving everything towards a privatization of hopefully most of the teams. All right, here's the other thing. So that's two, two aspects of, of building an ecosystem. Just in July, they just announced in July that the, the alignment between the Saudi Pro League, which is part of the Saudi Arabian Football Federation, uh, essentially they've, they've changed all their regulations for who can play on an SPL team. So, uh, and there has been some, you know, people have said, well, you know, if we're, they're getting all these people, what about Saudis? So this new regulation is going to reduce the age of eligibility to be on an SPL team from 18 years to 16-year-olds. That's immediate for the 23-24 season. Uh, the next step is that uh, currently of the 35 players on a team, they're going to require that 10 of them uh, be under the age of 21 for the 25-26 season. Right, so, you know, first the age goes down for the next year of eligibility. The following year, you're going to require that 10 of your team be under 21. So they're trying to really, you know, you know, have a youth movement. Um, and uh, there's a number of other other things. But, uh, you know, this is all part of a long term. So so essentially so and then by the 26, 27 season. So this is three years out. There'll be a mandate on clubs in the league to include eight homegrown players that are graduates of the club academies within their main roster of 25 squad players. So is that, are you with me on that? Was that clear? Yeah, that was clear. And that makes sense. Yeah. That's so first cool. they're going to say, you know, next year they got to you know more eligible. The following year, you got to have 10 kids under 21. And the year after that, eight of your core 25 have to be homegrown players. Um, again, trying to grow the ecosystem. Uh, they just named a guy, Matt Michael Emanello, who was just named as a new director of football. So it's all becoming very formalized. They're really setting out some protocols and requirements. Um, interesting factoids as a part of this, you know, looking into this. Since 2021, funding in Saudi youth football has increased by 162% and 23 regional training centers have been established and open. The number of registered male players has increased by 58%. The number of coaches has risen from 750 in 2018 to over 5,500 in 2023, of which over 1,000 are female coaches. Um, a new women's Premier League has also been launched. We've talked about that. Um, 
uh, you know, it, it commits new funds to support this premier league for women and a women's first division league, which is 30 clubs. Uh, so right now over 80% of the kingdom's population is either playing, attending, or following football. Um, so the purpose of this was just, just a crazy on this Kylian Mbappe offer, the responses and the attention it got, um, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen. You know, he'll, he's not. Gonna, it doesn't look like he's going to come. But it it's important to look at what else is being done to actually un, to, uh, to to support and create a foundation for a, a thriving, sustainable, uh, you know, football ecosystem in Saudi Arabia. They're really going at this in a serious, sort of holistic, organic way, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I love this, Richard, because you've done such a good job at really highlighting how the investment is not just in the headline gathering player acquisitions, which if you're only focusing on that, make it seem like they're just trying to buy their way into some sort of to generate the league into being more legitimate or sort of uh, an increase in, in that league's ranking versus other leagues just by having the best players. In fact, what they're doing, like you've said, I think brilliantly, is investing in the development of the ecosystem so that you have homegrown players in a matter of time. You have, um, you know, you have these rules built in so that you can basically create these clubs that are not just foreign players, but are a mix, a blend of both. And doing that is actually very good for the country. It's a good business. It's good for the country's health and wellness goals that are part of Vision 2030. And it makes the league watchable. I mean, you, you're when you have a hometown team, it's always cool, Richard, here in, the, yeah. in Washington, D.C., when you have Ryan Zimmerman, who is kind of from the area, played at my alma mater, alma mater UVA, Virginia, and then played for the Nationals. It, he makes, it makes him a little bit more of a hometown hero. Absolutely. And so you're, you're going to get that in the Saudi Pro League. The acquisition of these, of these big names and these transfers is sort of like putting fuel, it's like, you know, lighter fluid on a fire. It makes it burn brighter and faster and quicker, but long-term it's going to flare out if you don't support it with more wood and other kindling to keep it going and have it build for, you know, to be sustainable. Um, so I just think that was really interesting. I didn't know that about these forthcoming rules about having, making sure that you are developing the farm system for these teams. And that's super cool. And that means that these changes, these investments, they seem like big numbers now, but it's, it could be a very good investment in five to 10 years when players are jockeying to play in the Saudi pro league. Yeah, so yeah. it's, that's really cool. Also, as you're speaking, Richard, just wanted to make this point. Saudi Arabia's investments into sports are often lumped together as one thing. Like we're talking about just like, Oh, Saudi Arabia's sporting ambitions. And it's a phrase that I've used a lot, but if in your description, Richard, of all the stuff they've done, and again, that was just brilliant. Yeah. It's very different than, than golf. Like it they're, is. they're trying to make they're trying to make money on golf and they're trying to get a footprint on golf as, as a sport that hasn't really reached its international growth potential. But they're not trying to make golf happen locally as much as they are soccer. I mean, if you go to the driving range at the Saudi Golf Club right outside of Riyadh, it's packed. People are excited about golf because they're hearing about golf all the time. But 
they're not trying to get everybody in the country to start playing golf. And it's not part of a health and wellness thing in the same way that soccer, sorry, football is for Saudi Arabia. This is part of a, a society building exercise for the kingdom, what they're doing in sports. So I just think it's good to make that distinction. That was great, Richard. That was awesome. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, by the way. I've just been obsessed with the, the headlines and all the big names and stuff. So anyway, that's really those, interesting. Those are excellent points. And I think that's a good distinction between golf and, and, and football. Also, that lighter fluid imagery was was poetic, really nicely done. That just came to me in the moment. And I was like, wow, this is not bad. Usually when I come up with an analogy, I'm like, well, that's not exactly right. I Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, we, we have a we have a uh, 966 quiz for you. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, so uh, of the players, nationalities of the players in the SPL, Saudi Professional League, um, Obviously, Saudi is far and away the largest uh, number. So there's 371 Saudis in the league. What is the next nationality? And and then we'll we'll do that. If you get anywhere close to the next nationality and 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 number, actually, we're gonna make. We'll, we'll since you have actually no expertise in any of this, and like, but we spout <laughs> it anyway. <laughs> so what would be your guess for what nationality is next, and how many? Okay, so I'm going to go on a limb here, and I might not even be on the right side of the earth, but I would guess Argentina. You know, you're, you have a real instinct for this. It's not Argentina. Damn. <laughs> but it is South America. Ooh, okay. You, your instinct was excellent. And, and, and uh, it's, it's Brazil. Brazil, I actually thought about that anyway, so damn, Brazil, you know, next time. <laughs> Brazil at 28. So obviously the, the league is very heavily Saudi. So so 371 Saudi. The next next greatest number is Brazil at 28. And then here we go to Africa. Morocco, nine, Algeria, eight, Spain, eight, Colombia, seven, Argentina, you're Argentina, six, Cameroon, five, Portugal, five. You know, and then we go down into you know, four threes, twos, and ones. Um so, so the largest, second largest contingent is is Brazilian at twenty eight, which I think is interesting. I wouldn't, I you know, I, I'm kudos to you. I probably would not have guessed that. I would have guessed an African country. African country would have been, I think, a better guess, uh, just because of the proximity. The reason why I said Argentina is because um, when Qatar hosted the World Cup and oh, Saudi Arabia right. played Argentina, there were like a lot of. There's like a huge Argentinian expat community in Saudi Arabia that I was kind of unaware of. But the SPA did this like kind of video. We used some of their B-roll for some of our segments. And I remember watching it being like, there's a lot of Argentina jerseys here at this game or like in Saudi Arabia getting ready to fly over to Qatar for that game and (laughs) and ultimately be very disappointed in the result um, as the Green Falcons surprised them. So. Um, Richard, that was awesome. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I love um, when we do these segments because um, especially our one big things, because we sort of set them aside as like, this may not be the number one issue of the week, but we're just going to spend some time kind of going a little bit deeper into it than we may think we would. We try to mix them up every now and then, but look, soccer, and I did it again, Richard, this week is just the number one story on Saudi Arabia across the world, and it's not even close. And if you go to Google News, search for the word Saudi, use the news filter, and then make the timeline past week, you you can't find anything else about Saudi Arabia. The, the first story that comes up in the first 30 stories about Saudi Arabia that is not related to soccer 
was related to Erdogan's visit last week um, from Turkey. And I was like, yeah. so you have to filter if you're searching for Saudi and we do right. this for our newsletter every day. We use different uh, algorithms to feed information then we kind of sort it. Um, you have to subtract the word football or soccer to find stuff that is not football or soccer related. Yeah. And we get a lot of compliments, Richard, on this podcast that we draw attention to issues that are not just the main issue. But part of this is I'm just winding this compliment up. It's really good to get into this and say, look, this is actually a really significant and, and uh, 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 complex and, and there's a there's a strong strategy behind what they're doing here. And to really get to it like that was really good, Richard. Awesome job. By the way, thank you very much. And these are always fun. And you're right. We, we just pick them because we think they deserve some attention and we try and try and learn a little bit more about them. Um, did you watch any of the you probably didn't. You have you have guests and you have you have kids. Any of the U.S. women's in Netherlands game last night? I haven't. I really like watching women's soccer, Richard, but I have not watched. No, no, it's TV. OK. But but, it was, what, but it did was, they how, what happened? Like, tell well, me about they it. came out a little flat, but it was it was these women were going at it this was a chippy physical in your face game it was and netherlands was good uh so it was it was a good game uh, it was a one one draw but but um i'm guessing both teams will pass through get out of the group phase but who knows but anyway it was a highly contested chippy game it was it was pretty it's fun you know and i've got a daughter who plays you know lots of sports and 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 she uh, bless her heart and uh, pride of my soul is competitive never backs down and it was fun to see these women just go at it sounds like you've raised her right and i know for a yes. fact that you have raised her right so that is <laughs> awesome yes i've been meaning to turn it on where where is it being played uh this is new zealand and australia so oh, you okay. know it's it was late last night Okay, cool. Sometimes that means it's really actually at a good time. Uh, but um, well, it's it's funny because it's it's they're and they're all sort of they all a lot of them have long sleeves because it's a little chilly down there right now. Yeah, yeah, yep. You're, Richard, you're right. We had a I I, I want to say there were like a hundred people here last weekend for my wife's sister oh, yes, right. baby shower, and that was of course the weekend of the the open the british open and i wouldn't dare turn on the british open on the tv when we had this huge party of mostly women my wife's friends and etc so uh yeah there hasn't been a lot of good sporting on tv here um, and, and just for the record you were delighted to be supportive and helpful absolutely throughout the weekend absolutely it was my honor to do that um Richard, my one big thing this week, I want to talk about a recent royal order issued by His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, which includes some significant changes to Riyadh's largest university. And when I say largest university, I mean both in physical size. Um, if you've been to Riyadh, you can see it's massive, but also the enrollment, endowment, impact on the community. Riyadh, Richard, as you know, has several large and impressive universities, but I'm talking about King Saud University, a public university in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Of course, regular listeners know of the 966 that we've had several guests on the program, Richard, that have a direct affiliation with the university, employed by the university. Um, Dr. Abdulaziz Alanazi, who got his PhD at the University of Cincinnati over here, is now with King Saud University doing research and teaching there, and others, Richard, as well. King Saud was established in 1957. It was the kingdom's first university. And depending on where you're get, getting your numbers, 40,000 students there today at King Saud University, and that could be a little bit outdated. It's hard to find exact figures on Saudi on King Saud University online. It kind of varies. Richard, for a time, the university actually changed its name to the University of Riyadh, 
And in 1981, uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary, it changed its name back from University of Riyadh and went with the original name, which is King Saud University. Um, and actually, another interesting fact about King Saud, Richard, and I believe you may know a little bit more about this and could shed some light on it. Um, I can't find out if there's a tuition cost to attend King Saud. I know it's, uh, education is heavily subsidized, um, certainly priced below U.S. universities, public or private. Um, but it seems like a lot of the courses at King Saud University are tuition free. So anyway, Richard, I bring this up because, you know, visiting Riyadh, I think it's seven times over the previous 10 months now, King Saud University is everywhere. I mean, physically, it's such a huge campus and it's in really right in downtown Riyadh, super cool, but it's alumni, it's reputation, again, amazing location in the city. Um, and I have some friends, Richard as well, working with its venture arm, Riyadh Valley, which is absolutely top-notch. Shout out to those guys. Those guys are really brilliant and what they're doing along with Damam Valley and some of these other university-affiliated venture arms are sort of right where the rubber meets the road on driving forward venture capital in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so that's really where some of the best and brightest guys are in Riyadh in the VC space. So, and their their office and building is right on the King Saud University campus. So um, shout out to those guys, just uh, Dr. Khalid, Mohammed, they're, they're brilliant. Anyway, so getting to the news, Richard, recent Royal order issued by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, orders a, a transformation of King Saud University into an independent nonprofit academic institution that will be under the umbrella of the Royal Commission for Riyadh City According to multiple reports, Richard, and, and as we know, the Royal Commission for Riyadh City is growing in purview and power in, in Riyadh. So this is sort of a big deal. The Crown Prince also ordered a new board of director, directors to be created for the university. The Royal Order named Yusuf bin Abdullah Al-Banyan as chairman of the board of directors. And I think this is interesting, Richard, because... Al Banyan, who is Minister of Education, is also chairman of the board of directors for Saudi Arabia's SME Bank, which is under Munshaat. Um, he's also former vice chairman and CEO of SABIC. And Richard, I think it's incredible because this royal order from the Crown Prince basically names a who's who of Saudi Arabia's private and public sector leaders to the board kind of indicating that this is a big deal to him and he wants some of the best and brightest in Saudi Arabia to be running the show over there going forward. Minister of Human Resources and Social Development, uh, Ahmed bin Suleiman Al-Raji will be vice chairman. Um, there, there are just a number of other uh, people named to the board as well. Um, the Minister of Industry and Mineral Resources, the president of King Saud University, the president of the Saudi Authority for Data and AI, Fahad bin Abdelmosan Al-Rashid, the CEO of uh, King Faisal Specialist Hospital and Research Center, um, the governor of SME, I mean, the, the CEO of Riyadh Nonprofit Foundation, the president of King Abdullah University of Saudi, uh, president of KAUST, the CEO of the Saudi Tourism Authority, the chairman of the board of directors of the Council of Saudi Chambers, um, a representative from the Public Investment Fund, I just, and, and then also, Richard, I should mention, uh, SRMG CEO, Jomana Al-Rashid. So, there's a, a heck of a lineup here for the board of directors yeah. for King Saud University, and this royal order just makes it so. And it made me think a little bit about Richard, Richard, sort of maybe what's behind this. And I think Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman really wants King Saud to be 
you know, start really elevate itself as a, as a brand in the academic community globally as a destination for foreign students to come in. Its investment into into universities, Richard, Saudi Arabia is uh, really putting a lot into it. It's all part of Vision 2030. But I found this from the Oxford uh, Oxford Business Group, Richard, which you know is excellent and does the occasionally really awesome report on Saudi Arabia across you know a number of different things. Um, we know some people there as well. Uh, quote, Saudi Arabia's tertiary education segment is steadily deepening its contribution to the country's push for higher competitiveness via applied research and the alignment of educational outcomes with economic needs and labor market realities. This improvement is apparent in the expanding presence of Saudi universities in international rankings. The 2022 edition of the Academic Ranking of World Universities, also known as the Shanghai Ranking, includes seven Saudi higher education institutions among the world's top 1,000 universities up from four in 2019 and six in 2021. Similarly, in 2022, the kingdom strengthened it, strengthened its standing in the QS World University rankings with 14 universities entering the 1400 plus classification in comparison with nine in 2019. That's quite a jump. So Richard, um, and you know, we've talked a little bit about this on the show. I don't know how much these international rankings really matter. I know that universities really care about them. They care about them here in the U.S. um, and globally because they sort of help you attract students and professors. There was um, some criticism published in April, Richard, by a study of alleging that Saudi Arabia was trying to attract professors to King Saud and other universities with basically, you know, just offering them money and research grants to, you know, put their name on their profile online so that they would help boost their rankings. Um, that, that's out there as well. But yeah, so I don't know how much these international rankings really matter totally, Richard, but I know that it, it is a priority over there. Um, and you know, just looking at this, uh, Richard, according to uh, US News and World Report, uh, King Saud University ranks 20, 213th in the world in, in terms of best global universities, hmm. um, which is pretty good. I mean, there are a lot of schools out there. Uh, University of Virginia is 119th, which is good, I uh, guess. Baruch. Yeah, thank you. And George <laughs> Mason got my master's there, number 478. So King Saud has torched George Mason University <laughs> in the international rankings. Again, I don't know how much all this matters, but uh, Richard, just close with this. I think if you're looking to develop small and medium-sized enterprises in Saudi Arabia to drive the economy away from oil, just as a broad stroke, Obviously, one thing that you really need is really good venture capital. I think good venture capital comes um, not directly from universities, like what Riyadh Valley is doing, which again is excellent, but from sort of the spillover effects from universities, knowledge there and, and professors taking their technology or their businesses and making them private and entering the market so that they can be world beating and exportable. And I think Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman probably agrees with that because he's put this gentleman from the minister, well, the minister of education, but he's also chair of the SME Bank of Saudi Arabia uh, to be chairman of this university. So it's clear that it's a priority for him. And I think this may be a big deal as we as the dust settles from it over time. Uh, so just interesting. And I think this is one of those things, Richard, we get compliments a lot where people say, hey, like, it's great that you're drawing attention to news stories that you may not hear about normally. This is something that is not going to be picked up in the New York Times, but it's ge- genuinely significant for the city of Riyadh. It is. That's a good one. And I I didn't 
I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't understand. We, we, we had carried that article in the review. And then I don't understand. I don't really understand, to be honest, what it means in, in Saudi Arabia, which is generally a tax free environment, what it means to be nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But you you put your finger on it. What's really impressive is that board of directors. Um, you know, that's a that's a combination of, of really talented people with a diversity of skills. And it, that'll be really interesting what they want to do. I mean, they, you, you're, you're also right. I mean, Saudi Arabia really likes these, these global benchmarks in terms of education. So, you know, and we've tracked this, you know, as more universities and institutions are recognized and get into these, these tables, they really want to see this happen. Um, and, you know, KSU, you know, Saudi Arabia likes also, you know, sort of these anchor Institutions like KAUST, uh, Princess Nora University, the uh, King Faisal University of Petroleum and Minerals out in the Eastern Province. These are these are you know, like you say, they're hotbeds, magnets for for real uh, innovation and and academic you know progress. So so I mean, you can see why they want one in uh, in Riyadh, and they would like the King Saud University to be this. On a personal note, I worked at King Saud University in the '80s when I um, I was there, both working with the commercial counselor at the embassy, but also helping build the library at King Saud University. At the time, you've seen the architecture. The architecture is amazing, but when I was there, it was more out in the sticks. I mean, even the the diplomatic quarter hadn't been built. I mean, you've seen Riyadh, so it was it was much more sort of in a in a in a uh, sort of a moonscape type thing, this amazing architecture, you know, and you drive up to it. And, and I remember uh, the first Dune, the one with David Lynch and Kyle MacLachlan way back when, you know, was, it came out in 1984. And I don't know if people are familiar with Dune. Most people are, but you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, imaginary planet that is just essentially a desert. And I always thought this would be a perfect place to have filled film tune because <laughs> you know it, you know so it's, it's the desert landscape but then then this amazing architecture just coming out of it so it, it was so that's a uh, i digress but really fascinating and and um you know juxtaposed with with our two one big things are, you know are interesting in that it sort of speaks to the many many different ways saudi arabia is trying to deepen uh various environments and sectors you know one's one sports and, and participation and then and, and, and you know along with that comes you know global profile the other is an academic uh you know a, a stronger academic base that attracts uh, attention and maybe students as well as academics but you know it's they're, they're moving in a lot of different directions at the same time yeah and you know richard there's there's increasingly competition for these for international universities i mean you know if you were a top student you would pretty much go to an international university if you were saudi and now more and more that's a little bit less the case you have attractive options at home and if these you know investments and uh, changes to some of saudi arabia's universities to make them even more and more competitive you're going to start having saudis have a really tough choice between going abroad and, and staying at home and likewise you'll have some international students that start to think, hey, this school is, you know, pretty top rated. It's right in Riyadh. It's right next to 
some of the newest developments in Riyadh. It's right next to the digital city in Riyadh, which is so cool. <laughs> it's usually where I stay, so it's it's right there. So, um, yeah, just just cool, Richard. And I th- I think we'll keep an eye on this. Um, of course, yeah, any of see. these, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. This will be fun to watch. Let's see what this means to have this kind of board of directors and what it means to be a nonprofit. Yeah. Do you, so you don't really know what that means because I, I don't really know what that means. I, I have a sense of it in 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 our uh, our uh, you, you know environment and regulatory environment in terms of taxes and and that sort of thing and how it has to managed and and the bylaws required and that sort of thing. I have a sense of it, but I don't. But so, for example, a nonprofit. You know, here, you know, the U.S. stipulates certain things, one of them, and also gives you certain benefits. You know, people mm-hmm. can contribute without, you know, and take a tax deduction and that sort of thing. Again, I don't know how that would apply in Saudi. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, again, shout out to Khalid um, Muhammad, Khalid al-Salah, Muhammad al-Mansur, those guys, and Muhammad al-Jarala at RBC. Those guys just like... They, they sort of set the model for other university endowments to invest in venture and other and, and directly into startups. So it's kind of cool that they're just they're just way ahead. And it, anyway, so shout out to them. Richard, let's get to our conversation with Amr Sheikh. CEO Another good one. Another good Middle one. East. So good one. And, and such a good one. He's just brilliant. Um, and you can just tell he has vision and you can tell he, he really has, uh, you know, very unique mandate. And he just. It's, it's just awesome. So, and, and by the way, just you know, we had we had Jacob Mum that uh, with Bechtel on. Both of them really, and there's parallels, and that is one they're really committed to what they're doing, and they really see the value of what they're doing in terms of the evolution of a country. Anyway, again, from U.S. corporate perspective, because we're we're fanboys of the U.S. corporations, it's really nice to see this kind of care in what they're doing. Anyway, another good one. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome onto the 966, Mr. Amr Sheikh, Chief Executive Officer of PepsiCo Middle East. Amr has been with PepsiCo almost 25 years now. Not only has PepsiCo had enormous success in the MENA region and the Saudi market especially, it has also forged an incredible connection with the local community over decades in the kingdom. PepsiCo has a number of exciting projects and major announcements this year related to ESG, putting sustainability at the core of its strategy in the region. And we're very excited to talk about that in just a little bit. Amr, it's an honor. Thank you so much for joining us on the 966. Thank you, Lucian, and thank you, Richard, for having me on your show. Greetings, Amr. Yes, uh, we are genuinely delighted to have you join us on the 966. Thank you. Lucian's uh, intro is, is reliably comprehensive and, and and well thought out. By the way, Amr, thank you for being a listener to the 966. It's, it's always uh, encouraging. We've just yeah. been stunned and amazed by the audience we've gained and that it continues to grow because it's just been a, a really great experience. You, you, the fact that you're talking about Hajj, the fact that you're talking about this, the Islamic New Year, these are the conversation nobody's having in the U.S., you know, you know, I I grew up there. I know exactly. So you're bringing Saudi Arabia to people who may or may not be able to get to Saudi Arabia to see these things for themselves. And not just some of these things, not just limited to Saudi Arabia, but the impact is much wider for the Muslim community. You know, so so as a as a Muslim, as a Pakistani, as somebody who's living in Saudi, who is a U.S. national, I, you know, you guys have become um, a part of my routine now. So what started off as um, 
hey, you, you want to listen to these guys? They, you know, they they really know what's happening in, in in Saudi Arabia too. I can't wait to listen to you guys now to see what else are you going to talk about. As listeners and viewers of the show can confirm, we have frequently referenced PepsiCo on the show. Uh, personally, when I first lived in Saudi in, in the 1980s, I I drank a lot of Pepsi, <laughs> and but more importantly, became aware of sort of PepsiCo's long and deep involvement in the kingdom. More recently, though, and this speaks to what Lucian and I are trying to do, as we have built an audience for the show, and we sought out guests that we, you know, we think are interesting, we've discovered that in almost every direction we look, you guys, PepsiCo was involved, and and examples of this. So, so we prioritize featuring young Saudi entrepreneurs, PepsiCo, actively supporting this sector. We try to platform Saudi women as they increasingly engage in the kingdom's economy. Again, PepsiCo has programs for this. We champion American commercial and economic interests in Saudi Arabia. PepsiCo is deeply involved with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, AmCham, KSA, and other strong advocates of U.S. business. So I know, uh, and I hope you can get to these, these are initiatives that are only part of what you're what, what you're doing in, in Saudi Arabia. But we have to be honest to our listeners and our viewers that I think it's fair to say that you had us at hello in terms of this, this episode. And before we get, you know, we're going to get to, PepsiCo's long history. But before we do, we'd like to learn a little bit about your background. As Lucian mentioned, you've been with PepsiCo for close to 25 years, became CEO in um, uh, Middle East in early 2022. Can you bring us up to speed about your PepsiCo journey? Yeah, thank you, Richard. So so I'm, um, if I start from my background early days, I'm a Pakistani-American who's been in the Middle East for the last 18 years or so. So when somebody asks where is home, it's it becomes a quite a tricky question. So I started my education um, Loyola University of Chicago. So I grew up in uh, in the states, um, and then at some point after my career journey with Ernst Young, Disney, I ended up in Pakistan and I joined PepsiCo there back in uh, 1999. So almost 25 years ago, um, and in fact, I started in finance function. So from there. Um, from a country uh, CFO to a region CFO, and eventually I became a sector CFO. So the first 19, 20 years of my journey were in the finance function. So, um, And then I thought, okay, um, I've done this well. This has worked well for me, learned a lot. Um, I've been mentored by a lot of great um, managers, a lot of great GMs. So it's almost my turn to pay back and see what's it like to be in the number one position when the buck stops with you and you're responsible for not just delivering results, but really developing people and the next generation of talent. And at the same time, creating um, you know, a, a legacy, a set of projects that will be there long after you've come and gone. So it's really about the impact that you can have as a chief executive. So back in 2020, I put my hand up and say, hey, I've done finance for 20 years. Now would love to try a commercial role, and kudos to PepsiCo who um, took a chance, who took an opportunity, and they said, "Look, why don't you um, look after the Middle East, North Africa, and Pakistan business?" So I did that for the first couple of years, and then early 2022, we decided to put our beverages and foods business together as one team, looking after the current geography, which is really GCC plus Levant. Um, so we, I have all the six countries of GCC as well as Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. And I have a large team and a very capable team and an awesome team that really helps me 
manage this business and drive the agenda that we have. And some of that you talked about. Uh, and think of, while our focus today is Saudi, think of the impact, similar impact we're having in countries, neighboring countries as well, both within GCC as well as in Levant area. Well, let's let's talk about this is fascinating because PepsiCo has this long history, but you you arrive at a time in 2022 when you're 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 making a significant change, merging the the beverage and the and the and the foods together. Can you talk about uh, how you approach that and why it was decided this was critical to you know building the business? Yeah, so this was about the same time. Um, you know, Saudi government and the Ministry of Investment was talking about the regional HQ program. And we saw that as an opportunity to say in Saudi Arabia, though we've been present for 60 years plus, we've been present as a beverage business or as a foods business, but we've never really put together PepsiCo identity in Saudi Arabia. So the opportunity was for, for me to come across and be in Saudi and be the face of PepsiCo with all our stakeholders. So the idea is to both with the government as well as with our customers, and in fact, other stakeholders, how do we come across as one PepsiCo that is driving a much richer, much powerful agenda than just the individual snacks and beverages business? That's fascinating, especially in the context, because you have this 60 plus year history. It's the largest non-Saudi food and beverage conglomerate in the kingdom. But you're talking about an identity. So when 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 you decided you you made the decision we're going to merge these two two sectors, but you also talking about establishing an identity vis-a-vis -vis both Saudi Arabia, the community, all the people you service and sell to. What, what is the identity that you'd like to have? So you know historically we've been we've been in our foods business. We've been here for more than 25 years. Beverages more than 60 years. However, our identity was merged with some of our partners as well. We have fantastic business partners on the beverages side, some of the leading families, al Jume family, al Bokshan family, as well as Katani's family. So when we approach the government, we approach as the sum of um, three family businesses that are, that are franchisees, plus the Saudi snacks business, which are company owned. So you're, you're diluting your footprint, you're diluting your focus, and you're also diluting the impact that you could have. So if you then just take a step back and say to the government, look, as PepsiCo, this is what we bring to the party. We have collectively 9,000 plus employees. We have been operating for more than 60 years. We are, you know us as our brands in beverages as Pepsi, 7-Up, Mirinda, Mountain Dew, Aquafina, or Lay's, Cheetos, Doritos, and Quaker Oats, right? But now, you know, help us help you. So we want to be the strategic partner for Saudi government to enable Vision 2030 transformation. So if you think about where the Saudi government is going, it's all about you know, focus on you know, expanding beyond the oil economy that we had historically. So as you develop tourism, as you develop entertainment, as you focus on women empowerment, as you focus on youth development, as you think about sustainability, well, all of those boxes are being ticked by PepsiCo as part of our vision as part of our PepsiCo positive strategy. So with the government, you can paint a, a much more compelling picture of us as a credible partner. Now, if you, if you think about the customers, the customers now are seeing the power of PepsiCo portfolio as one entity. You know, take, take any of the modern trade uh, customers such as Panda or Otem or Danube. The conversation with them is no longer about just beverages or just foods. It's really about the power of PepsiCo for portfolio 
they can allow them to turn their store into shopping theaters for their consumers. And the same way with our consumers, by bringing together Power of One programs, you're offering a lot more to our consumers other than just a beverage or just a snack. Let's face it, if you're having a snack, you're thirsty, you're probably reaching out to a Pepsi beverage anyway. If you're planning for a party, you're buying PepsiCo snacks and PepsiCo beverages. So why not enable it to really have that as a one purchase? Well, first of all, can can I do a shout out to the Aljo May Group? The Aljo May Group is a longstanding corporate sponsor of Saudi U.S. Trade Group. And you're exactly right. High quality operation, great people. Um, uh, so it, it, it's really interesting coming together because you're talking about branding and that sort of thing. But you, but it also, it feels very much like PepsiCo has, uh, was very early on the, uh, the significant mindset, the change of mindset, the vision story has introduced, uh, you know, and we talk about this on the show a lot. We have guests who come on and talk about, you know, everything, everything, my paradigm has shifted, you know. From, from seven years ago, 2016, or even when it started to bite, 2018, whatever. Um, it feels like Saudi Arabia has, is, there's a brand aspect in terms of commercial sales, but there's also a reputational aspect. And this is where, where this is what I refer to when, when every time we turn to go to find somebody interesting, it seems like PepsiCo is involved in some way in that sector. So I guess, um, what's the proper term? Is this community outreach? Is it ESG? Is it something else? Yeah, we actually call it PepsiCo positive. Um, and if I take a step back, our mission is to really uh, bring smile to our consumer with every sip and every bite, right? And we want to be the number one FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods company in Saudi Arabia. To enable that, we have to be faster, stronger, and better. Faster means we have to win in the marketplace. Stronger means that we have to develop capabilities and really bring all our, our culture costs and transform that part of our business. But better is really about bringing purpose to the commercial agenda. Now, the companies, some of the companies will look at sustainability or ESG as something you do on the side to support your commercial business. For PepsiCo, that is the heart of our business. So every business decision is guided by our PepsiCo positive strategy. That means you have to really start with operating within planetary boundaries, and you have to really think of your strategies that are good for people, but also good for planet. So when you come across like that, then you think about as the leading FMCG business in Saudi Arabia, we have a responsibility and we have a duty to really bring the power of PepsiCo to the all aspects of our business. So our brands are already number one. Our brands are already part of the consumer fabric, but the Saudi consumers and elsewhere are really looking for a lot more from their brands. They want their brands to be purpose-driven. They, they want their brands to stand for something. So when we do a sponsorship of, let's say, um, you know, a Formula E um, in, in an event in Saudi Arabia, and we have Aquafina sponsoring that, it's not just about making your product available or making your water available in that event, but it's also making sure that you're collecting all the plastic that is being generated in that event and you're diverting that plastic away from landfills. So to me, that's really an example of how you're bringing the power of your brand to do something good for the environment as well. And these two are no longer two separate things. They're part and parcel of that's how we approach the market. So you want to be in the Saudi fabric you want to be where the youth is. You want to be in a part of the Saudi priorities. And as I said earlier, with 
women empowerment, youth development, and sustainability. Those are really the sweet spots for us within our PepsiCo positive agenda. So, um, so and me, because I, I want to understand, so the PEP, PEP Plus, the PepsiCo Plus is environmental sustainability, primarily circular economy focus. Um, your other programs, for example, the future is Saudi, which I'm happy for you to talk about, or Tamukini. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are youth empowerment focused, mm-hmm. um, yeah. women empowerment focused, um, and and if you can talk a little bit about those programs, sure. if you'd like, and also you know why why they were chosen and how they're how they're coming along. Yeah. So. You know, we, we sort of put all our activities together under this umbrella called Proudly Saudi. Uh-huh. So so the, so the fact that we've been here for 60 years providing employment to Saudi national, developing our own women talent, developing our own Saudi talent, how do you take it outside your, our four walls and really bring that expertise to the larger community that we operate in? So what we did was we created two distinct programs, Future is Saudi. That's, that's really about youth development. This is where we partner with Astrolab and Ministry of Communication and IT. And we sponsored um, 100 startups to really help them get better in e-commerce. So if the winning for them is in the e-commerce marketplace, how do you equip them with the right skill set to be able to compete at a global stage? So similarly, we've done programs to develop youth skills. um, And and we're doing with with, um, some of the other stakeholders to equip youth of today with the skill set that will help them develop and grow in the marketplace. But the proud, what I'm really proud about is our program, Tamakni. Tamakni is to enable. So this is really about women empowerment. We launched this back in 2019. And since then, we've been in, you know, figuring out how do we develop, how do we inspire, and how do we grow a generation of women you know, in line with the Vision 2030. So what we did was it has three programs, Amplifying Voices, facilitating mentorship and fostering entrepreneurship. So if I talk about amplifying voices, so in partnership with Family Affairs Council, we launched this Muzzin podcast. The Muzzin podcast is for women, by women. What you're doing is you're showcasing leading women of Saudi society, including uh, some of our own employees, to talk about their professional journey, their success stories, to really inspire other women. And, and you're giving them space to also talk about their personal journey, to talk about what was it like for them to grow in a not-so-women-friendly world and develop and really hold their own and get to those leading positions. So to me, that's amplifying voices. You're inspiring people by telling stories. Then when you get to the mentorship, uh, this is where um, you know, we partner with uh, AmCham and you know, with, with Ken Blanchard Companies and we created this women in business uh, network. So what you're trying to do is you're looking at the needs of Saudi female talent and the AmCham members, and you're you're working together to develop their skill set to be better leaders in the chosen field. Uh, and our third area was um, uh, fostering entrepreneurship. This is where I think you had Raghad on your on your podcast, um, you know, many episodes ago. Um, and this is Win Fellowship uh, in in partnership with Atlantic Council. And this is a leadership development program with Georgetown University where um, you're benefiting, again, the local Saudi female talent to have those, those leadership skills to be more successful entrepreneurs and really build scale businesses. And the top five WIN fellows 
actually get to go to the U.S. to have a personal journey and personal networking. So, and and that's just the example of what we're doing in Tamakni. The the funny thing is, you've had individuals who've been part of different programs on your show, so you heard bits and pieces. But this is really, if I were to say that those are the three pillars of our Tamakni program that's been out there for the last four years. And our objective is to develop 1 million women through that program and really uh, upskill them and give them the tools uh, and opportunities to really be successful in the world uh, out there. And we're, we're very much there with having impacted more than 100,000 women already that directly and then many more through the outreach of uh, Muslim uh, podcast. Yeah, and uh, Shams Al Shabi is a, a good friend as well. She does such a great job with that podcast. I just wanted to give her a quick shout out because it's she, she does, it's an amazing podcast. And it's in Arabic, but uh, it's fantastic. Uh, absolutely, and 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 shout outs because because I mean you mentioned previous episodes in the nine six six exactly, and this is you know Sarah, Sarah Bin Laden, Renato Jeffrey, Win Fellows have been on the show. Just recently, Dana Al-Jalani is co-chairman of the Women in Business uh, Committee at the American Chamber, AmCham KSA. Just really outstanding people. Yes, we've had you in circle, Dummer. We've been we've been getting closer and closer. <laughs> I'm interested in two things, really. And let's stay with this, and I'll come back to the other one. You must, you know, PepsiCo must be tracking uh, responses to these programs. In other words, as you look out after you've introduced these programs, you mentioned 2019, uh, do people perceive the company differently? Do they feel like it's even more invested than it was? What what is there a read that you've gotten on it? Yeah, look, it's um, it's very powerful for the for the women that go through these programs. You know, they're certainly um, super appreciative. It's very powerful for our own employees to be part of a company that is actually doing this for society. But to be honest with you, um, it's still a drop in the ocean. There's a lot more work to be done by PepsiCo, by companies like PepsiCo to really transform. I'll give an example. In our own organization, um, you know, our objective is to have um, gender parity, um, 50% of globally, 50% of a manager to be women um, by 2025. Uh, globally, we're about 40, 43%, I think, there. Um, in the Middle East, we're about 34%. The challenge is, you know, you you have some amazing female talent coming through universities, coming through early in their career, um, and and you're pretty good by mid management level. But it's the the mid management onwards and the senior leaders. There's just not that many to go around amongst all the stakeholders who are looking for great female talent, right? So, if it's not for companies like PepsiCo to really step in and start developing that talent, start helping. AmCham and, and really some of the other um, uh, companies to, to come together and really develop a program uh, to drive this agenda, I think we're going to be selling ourselves short. You know, we're, we're going to be saying something without really delivering against it. So our focus is very clear. If this is something that we need to do as part of PepsiCo Positive, we need to bring all our energy to make it happen. So it's not just fancy words but we actually published our um, report card against some of these initiatives um, on an annual basis. And we hold ourselves accountable, um, you know, to speed up where we may not be in line with our targets um, and, you know, and where we are ahead of the targets, you know, we want to make sure we stay, stay that way. You may have mentioned it uh, of your 9,000 employees, what percentage are Saudi? I, I saw a figure, but I, I'm not sure. 
I recall. So in, in our Saudi foods business, which is directly owned by us, we about 43% is uh, our Saudi national. What was very interesting is in our plant, we actually have um, Saudi females as some of the first. So we have the first female plant manager for Riyadh. Mm -hmm. We had the first female forklift truck driver. And we also had first um, you know, set of females working in our second ship. So allowing more opportunities for women to join industrial workforce. And, and what I'm also proud of is that we have been able to provide um, employment opportunities to um, you know, hearing impaired individuals, people with special needs. And we've conducted sign language uh, training for our other employees to be able to communicate to them. So it's, to me, you know, the, the holistic agenda is if you're part of a community, you want to make sure every member of that community has an equal opportunity to be part of your workforce. You referenced the regional HQ program earlier. Was was PepsiCo headquartered in Riyadh? So we were one of the first signatories, um, you know, to the regional headquarter program. And we saw an opportunity to be able to, as I mentioned earlier, bring our foods and beverages businesses through that program. So, yes, I relocated uh, as part of that program, um, in, you know, to Riyadh. Yeah, I, I and, and my understanding is that the first movers are are enjoying enjoying the fact that they were first movers because <laughs> those coming a little later in the pipeline aren't getting such a, a warm reception. <laughs> yeah, well, Misa have been actually fantastic partners to us, and shout out to them. Um, you guys were talking about Hajj recently in in one of your shows, so they had actually invited some of the Muslim CEOs, and I was one of them who was able to join them for the Hajj this year. Oh, what a, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So uh, we're halfway through, and we'll, we'll step back and maybe look at what's going on in Saudi Arabia, if you like. We're halfway through from the announcement of Vision 2030 to 2030. Right. Um, we had an interesting conversation with uh, a friend of ours, a lawyer friend of ours, late in 2022. Uh, and he was saying, you know, I'm watching this. I'm seeing a lot of things big things are going to start happening in 2023 where you're actually going to see things happening that the groundwork has been laid. But anyway, how in Europe, as, as a head of a major U.S. corporate, what do you see in terms of this progress, this you know trajectory that they're on? Yeah, you know, I get goosebumps talking about some of this, because if you're if you've not been to Saudi, you haven't really seen this, the, the scale of the change that's happening. And, and just for our Listeners, let me just put it in perspective. When I talk about Kidia, um, and I had an opportunity to meet with the senior management of Kidia to talk about their plans, they talk about bringing 70 assets. So I'm like, okay, so what's an asset? Well, the biggest theme park of Six Flags is one of those 70 assets, right? Formula One could be the other, water park could be third. So the scale at which this development is taking place is unprecedented. And for those of us who are in Saudi Arabia at this time of our lives, you actually have front row seats to something that, that is groundbreaking, that is revolutionary, that I'm not sure has been done uh, like that. So my question to them was, what's your inspiration? You know, what are you trying to create in Kidia, which is about, what, 40, 45 kilometers outside Riyadh? They said Orlando. I'm like, which part of Orlando? They're like, no, no, Orlando. <laughs> so, you know, how do you get your head around that in the middle of the desert, there's going to be another Orlando that, you know, at some point in the future, people will make plans to come visit 
um, and enjoy, you know, the activities that they will have on offer. Um, so, so it, how does the work? Well, we're actively engaged in discussions with Kidia management team. The work is ongoing. Um, and then we had an opportunity to see another Giga project, which was uh, the Draya Gate uh, late last year when our CEO was in town. Again, it's it's there, it's happening, um, and it's a beautiful area for people to walk around and enjoy. So to me, when we hear Neom and some of the other projects where people are not able to get there easily and see the progress with their own eyes, there are many, many projects in the middle of Riyadh, in the middle of Jeddah, where you are seeing um, development at a very fast pace. Um, King Salman Park is another one of those. Um, you, you know, busy, it's happening. So I think um, you're going to see, you know, I'm not sure about 2023, but certainly over the next two to three years, a lot of these projects will come online. And I think people who are, you know, perhaps not sure or, or, or you know, not necessarily buying into the development agenda will say, well, I didn't know this was happening. I didn't know that that these kinds of developments were taking place. Um, I'll talk another thing, uh, fine dining restaurants. Just overnight in Riyadh, the areas have sprung up with some amazing restaurants um, that, you know, you can compare um, Riyadh restaurant scene to almost anywhere in the world where you can get all kinds of cuisines with high quality food. It wasn't there a couple of years ago. So while in COVID, I think everybody was working from home. There, there were a certain group of people that were very busy putting all of this um, in, you know, together. So I'm seeing change um, you know, at, a, at a quite fast pace, but you have to be here to really believe it, to see it. Um, you know, and, and I think um, th those who are coming in and out um, are seeing consumers change, are seeing the, um, the habits change at a much faster pace. I'll, I'll give you another example. We had a talk with um, six um, sort of females, um, you know, who are in different field or leaders in their own, um, you know, areas. And we were sort of asking them about the change pace and how a company like PepsiCo should really be, you know, encouraging or responding to that pace um, and, and that change. And I think what I was, was surprised to hear was that, you know, they're all leaning on each other to figure out how far can they push the envelope, right? So some of this is uncharted territory, mm -hmm. uh, even for them. So the, the pace of change is at such a fast pace. Those who are actually in the middle of the change are trying to figure out that, am I at the middle point? Am I just starting off or am I near the end, right? So so how should the society and the social norms and, how, and the behaviors, how should they be changing to um, be you know, in line with the, with the rapid change that's happening in Saudi? Your reference of Orlando vis-a-vis Kadia, it was interesting because you, I'm sure you're aware, the Crown Prince Mohammed you know, said our, our point of reference for, for the line in Neom is Miami. I heard and, that, yeah. And we constantly comment on this. I think we don't, we, you know, we don't fully understand the, the, the aspirations, how ambitious they are. Uh, it, it, is, it is extraordinary. Uh, to see what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And, and you know, Time Out, Time Out, which is a, a publication that has monitored ranked restaurants and dining opportunities globally for 50 years, you know, came out with their first Time Out Riyadh this past year. You know, reflecting what you're saying, it's just the, the options and the opportunities have just exploded. 
So we actually hosted the first timeout uh, restaurants award last year. Um, it was sponsored by PepsiCo. So just, so uh, as a I, just I, I just want to point out once again, <laughs> PepsiCo is involved everywhere. in everything good going on in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> well, we, you know, you know, the thing is, our products, our beverages and foods are really part of Saudi society. I mean, I mean, Pepsi uh, is synonymous with, um, in, you know, beverage of choice for every individual. Um, in, in, so we, we do, you know, we, we take pride in that, but we don't take the responsibility lightly. You have to stay ahead. You have to continue to delight and continue to put smiles on your consumer. That means you really need to be where they are. Um, and if Saudi Arabia is going to be one of the top five tourist destinations in the world, well, guess what? We want to be part of that excitement as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your partnership with uh, Astrolabs? Uh, th it's really fascinating, and it, it's um, I'm sort of interested in how that works. And and are you guys is PepsiCo Middle East investing in some of the businesses that mature into e-commerce startups, or are you just providing the support? Yeah, so we're providing the support. So by working with Astrolab, what we did was we identified um, 100 entrepreneurs um, who had b businesses at various level, and through their help and through the help of Ministry of Communication and IT you put them through a series of skill building activities. You know, you know to give you an example, how do you do contracting in an international environment? How do you do marketing? What should be the look and feel of your website? So you're equipping them with the skill set to allow those entrepreneurs to compete at a global stage. And, and to me, the beauty is that anybody's sitting, you know, can start a business, um, you know, from their homes, but they may not be able to take it global without the help of, um, people like us. So I, I think we've been fortunate. I, I've rattled out so many different names of our partners and stakeholders that we're finding partners who share our purpose, who share our vision, um, and who are very happy to partner with PepsiCo to say, yes, we're in it, you know, in this with you, and we're going to make it happen. And, uh, you know, Lucian, Lucian, I'll also talk about Greenhouse Accelerator Program, because that's similar to um, that. What we did last year is we Put out, we said we want to be able to drive circular economy, um, and we and our vision is is for plastic bottle to eventually become a plastic bottle again, uh, and to divert it away from landfill. So what you do is you're looking at partners that can help you drive consumer awareness. So today there are many compounds in Riyadh where we are actually collecting plastic. Then you're looking for partners that can collect that and divert it away from landfill. So Wesco comes in, uh, and we're doing that. And, and then, so what we did was we created this greenhouse accelerator program to say, we don't have all the answers. Who are the startups that are operating in this space? And out of 70 applications, we identified 10. We gave them a $20,000 grant and we put them through a six month program through mentors that were PepsiCo employees uh, and some external uh, mentors as well. And then we selected one of the companies that, were, that was able to really make the best progress in those six months, we're able to scale the business model. And that's Nadira, um, that is now, um, you know, pan-Middle East company uh, that is really collecting um, plastic and other waste from different sources and diverting it away from landfill. So we've been fortunate to create these programs, find like-minded partners, and being able to make meaningful progress. Uh, uh, sort of... Uh similar vein in terms of local partnerships. So, and you mentioned some of your partners, um, Aljomay, Akatani, Bakshan, going back many years, decades. 
I guess all of Pepsi's products are produced in Saudi Arabia, correct? That is true. That is true. Not only so on beverages and foods, all of that uh, Pepsi products is, is here, but we are also a major agro player. So, you, you know, so not only do we make our products here, but we make our products from Saudi potatoes. So if you get into the agro space, again, you'll find PepsiCo name there quite prominent. And I think that's and that's fascinating because that draws you into a whole whole another train of sustainability issues. And you're now you're getting into water as well. True. I mean, uh, trying to be responsible and, uh, you know, the, the, the purview of PepsiCo is enormous and it, it's got to keep you busy day and night. But that, that Richard, that actually is one of the pillars of PepsiCo positive, which is positive agriculture. So there, so globally, we have something like 7 million acres under our stewardship. So the idea is that how do you make sure that, um, you, you know, you know you're, you're treating that land with care, um, you're looking after it, and then you're also minimizing the amount of water that we're using. So, so the key is to be able to take the responsibility seriously and, and work with our farmers, work with our local communities to be able to drive that agenda. Just fascinating stuff. Mr. Hummer Sheikh, Chief Executive Officer of PepsiCo Middle East. Thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating and, and, and excellent. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. That was our conversation with Amr Sheikh. We thank him for his valuable time. We thank his team for working with us and Richard directly. And I thank Richard as well for brokering that uh, conversation, <laughs> which I know it just, it takes a lot of logistics. So Richard, brilliant job. Amr, this, thank you. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. This pleading and cajoling and harassing count as brokering. <laughs> He's a <laughs> listener to the 966, which yes. we love. So, you um, know, we love to hear. You know, we're not rich. It's not like we have deep pockets, but that was a boatload of psychic income, you know, to hear him genuinely be, you know, I, I really like listening to this. Yeah. And we, we knew that, Richard, because he sent an email randomly of feedback thanking us for the shout out a few weeks ago. And um, we just sort of knew that he was listening, which is awesome. Um, and and again, like a lot of feedback we get from listeners were, I don't want to say we're surprised that they're listening, but they're pretty influential people. And it's really cool to yeah. know that they're, yeah. uh, that they're listening out there. So thank you, Richard. Let's get to Yella. What do you think? Yella. Saudi. Yella. <laughs> Yella. Let's, uh, let's not <laughs> hire one. someone else. This gets better and better. <laughs> Number one. Number one. And this is a twofer because, uh, uh, Lucian and I are swapping, you know, possibilities for Yellas, and we both like this one, and it's both on mining, so it's a twofer. Uh, Saudi state mining giant Madden and U.S.-based Ivanhoe Electric have closed a deal to investigate 48,500 uh, 48, square kilometers of underexplored lands in the Arabian Shield for, quote, critical minerals, unquote, that are key to powering the global energy transition. Surveys could begin as soon as September. Uh, in the new, voyage venture, new joint venture, which is worth nearly $130 million. The Saudi region, roughly the size of Switzerland that they're looking at, is understood to be rich, rich potential for critical minerals such as copper, nickel, gold, silver, and possibly lithium. 
Last week, the International Energy Agency said the market for minerals that help power electric vehicles, wind turbines, wind turbines, solar panels, and other technologies key to the clean energy transition has doubled in size over the past five years. All right, that was one. Uh, complimentary one. Brazilian miner Vale is close to completing a deal to sell a roughly 10% stake in its 25 billion dollar base metals unit to a joint venture between Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund and a Saudi mining company, according to people familiar with the matter. Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth vehicle, the public investment fund, and state-owned mining company Madden are nearing an agreement to pay $2.5 billion for the stake. The deal could be announced as soon as this week. Lithium would be a dream for Saudi Arabia that's part of what they will be exploring in the first one you read with Mad and, and Ivanhoe Electric. So that's going to be interesting. That's a large exploration area too. So that's we're going to be watching that here. Um, you know, lithium obviously being key for some EV batteries. Um, I'm not sure it's maybe the long-term solution for EV batteries. I'm a little biased on that one, Richard. But uh, those are these are two big mining stories. And you're right, we couldn't choose between which one because they're both very important and they both demonstrate follow-up to previous announce announcements of the kingdom saying that it is interested in investing $32 billion in the mining and mineral sector. I think we're probably in the first quarter of that game where they're starting to make these international deals. They've had the successful bidding for the Hanagia. Hanagia. Site, we worked it in. Nice, we got a nice episode 96 Hanagia mention. Um, <laughs> That was really cool. That happened last September, Richard, um, where the Saudi Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources had an online bidding for that. The winner was the UK-Saudi Consortium of Moxico Resources and Aljan Bros Brothers Mining Company. So, yeah, I mean, Richard, they're just this is just follow-up and action on big announcements. And one of their focuses for Vision 2030 is getting the mining and mineral sector to reach peak potential. That's what's happening. So we had a really interesting conversation that will be coming up in um, uh, episode 97. And um, our guests refer to a policy and choices and initiatives as logical. And I wanted to, the one, one of the reasons I think it makes sense to put these two together. So the, the snippet from the first one about the modern and Ivanhoe Electric was from an article in the Arabian Gulf Business Insight, which is, has done a pretty good job. But I wanted to quote a little bit from it because it ties these two together. It also uh, sort of shines a light on the challenge a country like Saudi Arabia has in trying to move forward in a field because it has natural resources. But how do you get the technology and expertise to really uh, exploit these resources? So this is from that Arabian Gulf Business Insight article. Quote, the kingdom continues to offer attractive power tariffs and financial incentives to create industrial clusters. This is according to a consultant at CRU Consulting. These advantages have attracted market-leading players to the region. So, and this is, they're talking in the context of copper. Um, experts believe that while Saudi Arabia has enough mined copper to justify smelting facilities, the prospects for critical mineral, mineral refining projects that would rely on imported material are less certain. Christopher Ecclestone, strategist at principal at Hallgarten and Company, said Saudi Arabia might have the funds to become a player, but not yet the expertise. And here's his quote. 
They need to put their money where their mouth is and quickly, referring to a fund set up by Modin and the PIF earlier this year to invest in mining assets overseas. So it's really interesting. So there's this, this you know, yellow combines these two things where they, they've got these natural resources, they put in incentives uh, for, for uh, serious and substantial uh, exploration companies to come in and pursue these, these opportunities. But they're also going out and getting technology like this investment in Vail uh, to help them more fully exploit, exploit, take advantage of these uh, mineral assets. So it's it, you know it's it's a multi pronged approach um, that requires uh, you know a lot of planning and obviously investment. So it's just interesting to happen see these two things happening sort of simultaneously that sort of uh, you know reveal what they're trying to do. The Arabian Shield is so yes. cool. I like love that. It has to be mentioned every time we talk about mining. It's just rad. This has Sounds been like cool. this has been like the the uh, you know the jackpot for you. Hanagia, Hanagia Arabian, Arabian Shield. Yeah, Ma'adin <laughs> is another one. I, I love the apostrophe, and then you get the roll the A over. It's one of my exactly. favorite things as well. So that's a threefer right there. Um, Richard, good one. Yellow number two. According to Euromonitor International, the inflation rates for the UAE and Saudi Arabia in 2022 were 5% and 2.5% respectively. These rates were considerably below the global averages reflecting the effectiveness of the economic strategies pursued by these markets. Both the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been relatively successful in managing the pandemic, ranking second and fifth out of 53 respectively in 2022 Bloomberg's COVID resilience ranking. This effective management allowed them to quickly resume their economic and social activities and keep inflation under control more effectively than any other country worldwide. Excuse still, me, than many other countries worldwide. I think yeah. they're two and fifth, so not, who's number one? I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> no. USA, obviously, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> good one. Um, the... You know, the 2.5% is crazy. That's pretty impressive. I mean, the UK, I think, is at 8%. They just hit 8%. And inflation and pressures in the US are coming down. But it got up into the sevens. Um, and, it, you know, it it it, uh, it speaks, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. I mean, it speaks to good management. Obviously, the, the, the COVID uh, protocols and how the regime handled the COVID crisis you know, as we see in that COVID resilience ranking, they were top five in the world and it enabled them to come out and get back into the, the economy rolling, you know, sooner. It also maybe enabled them to avoid some of the inflationary pressures. We have, you know, Saudi Arabia is an authoritarian state and it controls its, its it, you know, it, it monitors its its economy. So it's got, you know, there's such a thing as Saudi Arabia's Consumer Protection Association. This monitors price movements, make sure you know, there aren't unwarranted price hikes. Um, can't really do that in the U.S. Um, the currency peg helps them. E-commerce has helped them drive down things. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they've managed it really well. And, and you know, as an American, as a, you know, a, a household, you know, trying to pay for college and groceries and, and whatever, gas, you know, inflation stinks. It really takes a bite. So mm -hmm. if you can manage that, that's a huge economic bonus. Absolutely. 
Kingdom's economy, Richard, is going to be just received a pretty significant downgrade from the IMF, I believe, for this year. And a lot of it is because they've slashed oil production. So receipts that are coming in are a little bit lower, not a little bit lower, significantly lower, I should say. So. But that's yellow number six. That's yeah. And I'm sorry. I just want to add it as context for those of you that watch Justice <laughs> segment. Um, but yes, uh, Richard, if you watch really Justice cool segment, check out yellow number six. Yes, give us two views instead of one. Um, <laughs> or if you're a regular loyal listener, it is cool how many of you are there, and we appreciate it. Um, just stick around. We'll be right back to that in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, yellow number three. The population of Saudi Arabia has reached 32.2 million. 42% of whom are foreign nationals with 63% of Saudis under the age of 30. The country's general authority for statistics uh, noted recently, the median age of the total population is 29, according to a 2022 census, which was the first in 12 years. Annual population growth since 2010 has been 2000, 2.5% on average. The latest census data showed with the total population jumping 34.2% since 2010. Foreign residents dropped from a peak of 14.6 million in 2016 to uh, uh, in 2020, where there's just a, just more than a million foreigners in the kingdom. The number that jumps out to me, Richard, is the median age at 29. That's crazy. Um, and I think, the re- Richard, the reason why you wanted this in here, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but uh, for the same reason the economy and planning minister, Faisal Al-Ibrahim, said to a press conference in Riyadh why this was the census mattered a lot and why it was the most comprehensive and accurate census in the kingdom's history. And then he said, quote, its outputs will be a key pillar for planning and decision making and supporting the investment environment in the kingdom. So, I mean, this is what they're basing a lot of their policy on is this data and, and you know, catering to the needs of the population as it is. So anyway, pretty, pretty cool and interesting data in here. It is, and we we should do either one big thing, or hopefully we can get a guest on this because I think it is key. Because I mean, they they, you know, they dove into you know population composition of households, housing stock, education, health, migration, labor market, you know, so and more to come. But we also didn't really circle back on this um, because that thirty two point two million is actually less than they projected, uh, and they've had to go back and revamp some of their uh, population, you know, estimates, uh, you know, going back to, to, to 2010, um, you know, and, and, and obviously it affected the, the birth rate and, uh, and, you know, average and percentage growth annually. So, um, so since 2017, based on the new information, population growth is slow to an average of just 0.8% per year with the number of non-Saudis, as we know, declining substantially from 14.6 million in 2016 to 13.4 million in 2022. Um, so yeah, you were getting some new info and some surprising info. So we, I think definitely we want to try and mine this and uh, somebody from uh, General Authority for Stats should come on the show. Yes, a statistician will really <laughs> provide yes. for the most interesting uh um, show, but I mean, Richard, that you're you're exactly right, and this is you know this is a huge deal. Did I read somewhere in the review this week that the fewer Saudi citizens, or did we just talk about this, where that the, the fewer number of Saudi citizens, the, the sort of revised downward, that that can help actually Saudi Arabia meet its goals a little quicker? Did we talk about that? 
Yes. I mean, obviously, anytime you got fewer citizens, your per capita numbers go up. So and your percentage of this and that. So, yeah, this is this is sort of they're trying to sort all this out because it, it, it does have ramifications and it may make some 2030 targets easier to reach or more, you know, closer. But, um, yeah, I think this this there's still things to unfold from this. But this is why you do a census. Yep. Really cool. Richard, yellow number four. Delivery Hero, the German online food and delivery company, is taking full ownership of its Saudi subsidiary in a transaction valued at $297 million. The company said it had bought the remaining 37% stake in Hunger Station, which operates Delivery Hero in Saudi Arabia, in a deal that represents an effort from the Berlin headquartered firm to expand its presence in the Middle Eastern food delivery market. Hunger Station connects more than 10,000 partners, including restaurants, and grocery stores with customers. Um, I don't think there's much to add here. I mean, it's, it's such a competitive sector. I, I do think it's interesting that you have a European firm coming in, and, you know, fully investing in a in a in a Saudi company. I also, you know, there was a there's a, a just a flood of delivery apps now, you know, and you know the the. The COVID in Saudi Arabia just, you know, blew up the the you know food delivery business, and I wonder if there's going to be um, ongoing mergers and sort of consolidation. Yeah, I think Jahez is the leader in the space. That's the one that at least a lot of my friends use. I can't use delivery apps, Richard, because I don't have a Saudi phone number, and I really don't want to get one. I don't need one, like. WhatsApp works, everything works over there. So I don't want to like get a different number, but you need a Saudi phone number to get food delivery. So that sucks, but um, maybe they'll fix that. But uh, every time I do that, I get right to, you know, the point where I'm ready to get some chicken delivered to my hotel room and boom, it's like, oh, you need a Saudi phone number. It's like, uh, <laughs> so maybe they'll fix that. Maybe that could be a big value add that they do. I don't oh, know, yeah, but exactly. um, that would be really great. Um, but it, it is cool. And, and, uh, Somebody got paid here, Richard. Some, some, yes. um, you know, somebody got made some money on this. So kudos yeah. to them. If they're <laughs> in the mood to sh deliver some of that money over to yeah. us, Richard. Yeah. Hung uh, Hunger okay. Station. Hunger Station. Yeah. So, um, but I do think Jahez is the, is the preponderant uh, provider in that space. So maybe they're looking to take some of the market share away from that. From that I'm idea. thinking your, your inability to order fast food late at night is probably ultimately a good thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a good thing. Um, <laughs> We'll just leave it at that because uh, otherwise it would get, you know, I would be, I, we'd have to zoom the screen out here, Richard, to fit all of me into it. <laughs> um, yeah, good one. And congrats to uh, that gentleman. Um, is this me? Number five? It is. Uh, the King Salman Humanitarian Aid and Relief Center, KS Relief, affirmed that Saudi Arabia is one of the few countries that hosts the largest number of refugees who enjoy the status of visitors. The kingdom has spent a total of more than $18 billion during the period of during the last 12 years. These refugees hail from Yemen and Syria, as well as the Rohingya Muslims of Myanmar. KS Relief reported that Saudi Arabia has hosted around 1.07 million refugees in recent years, equivalent to 5.5% 5 5 of the Saudi population. That's a lot of money on refugees, $18 billion for over 12 to 13 years. But, you know, sort of makes sense, right? Yemen, Syria, as you no noted, uh, Rohingya, Muslims of Myanmar. 
You know, I remember Adel Al-Jaber, who's the current uh, uh, minister of state and former uh, minister of foreign affairs and also former ambassador to the U.S., when uh, you know the you know, when when Syria went to hell in uh, 2012 and that sort of thing, and obviously the, the, you know there were um, refugees just spread out through the area, lots of them going to Turkey, Iraq, elsewhere. You know, Saudi Arabia was criticized for not doing its part, and and I remember him saying, you know, we are doing our part, we just don't talk about it. And furthermore, when, when we get refugees here, we don't treat them as refugees. We try and incorporate them into the society as much as we can and ensure that their experience is, is uh, palatable, at least. Um, but I, I do remember him saying, look, we don't, it's not something we brag about, but you know, we definitely feel this and want to be responsive to it and accept and and try and take care and accommodate refugees, you know, to a large degree. And this is these numbers, like you say, you know, spending 18 billion uh, during the period of 2011 to 2023. Um, and, you know, the, and, and the, I, you know, I, 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 that's one of the reasons I thought it would be good. We should include this because it, you know, chaos relief is active globally uh, in a lot of areas. And it, you know, it's, a, you know, there's a Muslim, um, I don't know if it's a proverb, but essentially, if you talk to a good Muslim, they believe strongly, and and part of their part of their religion is to zakat and to give and to be generous. Uh, but they believe strongly that to bring attention to a good deed is to diminish it. And you know, I think certainly in terms of relief and charity, Saudis are reluctant to really talk about what they do because in in their faith. You do it because it's the right thing, not because you get credit for it. Uh, and, you know, and that's very counter to you know the self promotion of the world that is is as we know it. But so I just thought this was interesting. I hadn't seen these numbers before. I knew that I knew they were significant, um, but I does think it does reflect well on Saudi Arabia that they are they're responsive and they're making real commitments to try and alleviate people suffering in a, in a you know in a in a region that is you know full of suffering. Absolutely. Um, we don't see any numbers in here, Richard, or any mention really of Sudan, and but we know we played, they played an, a role there. Right. Um, so good on them. I mean, the, the credit where it's due, this is, this is great. And this was a good one to include, Richard, because we don't, it's not, not something that would make it above the fold necessarily, but it's huge. And, and gosh, Saudi hospitality is just <laughs> indescribably awesome. So just kind of unsurprising to see this. But um, yeah, good one, Richard. Yellow number six, Saudi Arabia's leadership in OPEC Plus with voluntary cuts to production has proven to be costly, sending its receipts from oil sales abroad down by a third to its lowest in over a year, according to a report in Bloomberg, which we carried in the Saudi US trade group. And that cited the kingdom's general authority for statistics, GA stat, another mention for GA stat, Richard. Yes, and this come on episode, the show. Come on the show. The kingdom's oil exports, exports dropped to just over $19 billion during May, according to data from the GA stat that includes both crude and refined products. The share of oil sales in total exports fell to 74% from nearly 81% a year ago, according to Bloomberg. We've talked about being an energy you know, forecaster. I, I don't 
I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because by the way, you know, while while the IMF has downgraded, you know, the economic predictions for forecast for Saudi Arabia to 1.9%, this is down from 8.7%, they significantly increased almost by a total point Russia's who are exporting like mad and their export numbers are up and they're, you know, to India and China and, and all sorts of other uh, intermediaries. Uh, so it's just really fascinating. I mean, what Saudi Arabia is doing and, and for so long, you know, the mantra you heard is we're not going to do the eighties again. And you recall in the eighties, uh, Saudi Arabia slashed its own output from more than 10 million barrels a day to less than two and a half million barrels a day. This is in 85, 86, and just took a beating, just took a beating. Prices fell, you know, the years long slump. They had, you know, basically led to 16 years of Saudi budget deficits. And, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna reduce production unilaterally ever again. You know, you know, you know, what we're interested in market share is, and, and so on and so forth. But it, you know, it, this is what they're doing at the moment. Um, and it, you know, it stabilized prices. Uh, I mean, Brent, I think is $84 today, you know, it had gotten into the low seventies. So in that regard, uh, it's working, but I mean, is again, if, if, if you're saying, you know, the key thing is not necessarily production, but market share, they're giving up significant market share. Yeah. I, I, I'm just looking now, Richard, it's, uh, right around 80 bucks a barrel. Oh, is it for Brent? Brent. Or WTI? Uh, unless it's WTI here. Uh, WTI Bloomberg only, is 80. Yeah, okay. Then Brent will be, usually it's a little bit higher than WTI. Yeah, I think, Bloomberg I think, didn't note that. That's a little weird. They just said crude oil in this article. I'm like, hmm, which, which index? Um, so yeah, but I mean, Richard, like the point there is that it's working, but it's expensive. Where's the thank you from the rest of OPEC plus that's just producing the same amount. They're getting the price that is only that high because of Saudi Arabia and, and a little bit Russia, but mostly Saudi Arabia. Well, this is, I guess this is the point of the eighties. Nobody feels sorry for you. They're just going to take their market share and their profits and go while you take the hit. And, uh, you know, it, it is just interesting, uh, you know, cause the very, and, and obviously I think they feel very strongly that OPEC plus as in OPEC plus Russia is a, is a, is a better vehicle and a more uh, useful platform than just OPEC without Russia. Um, but they're, they're taking an extraordinary hit and in order to sustain this. Uh, so again, I'm not an oil expert, but it's, it's interesting to watch. And, and I have no doubt they have all sorts of actual, you know, you know, analysts and accountants, and they look at the numbers and they understand what's going on. Um, but it's a big bet and they're taking a big hit and they have, you know, significant, um, you know, expenses and investments that they have ongoing that they, they want to pursue. So I guess the, um, IMF feels like Saudi Arabia needs a price at basically eighty-one dollars a barrel to balance its budget. Saudi Arabia, yeah, uh, it's it's averaging in the seventies. I don't know if they'll get to eighty-one, but even so, you know that eighty-one number probably doesn't include some of the massive investments they're making on these giga projects and infrastructure, uh, you know, projects. Yeah, Richard, we're we are not oil experts. We've had some on the show, but it's interesting because Bloomberg surveyed 22 traders, analysts, refiners, uh, just to kind of see what they think about this. And 15 of the 22 
said that Saudi Arabia is going to stick with these huge supply cuts well into December. And you can kind of understand why, right? Because they're sort of saying, look, like we're doing this. We want to signal to traders, to the people that Bloomberg spoke to, to to really anybody trading that this is here to stay. We're, we're committed to this. It's going to be expensive. We don't care. We prefer to not have to do this, but that's what they're going to do. So, um, and Richard, to the point that you made about it working, oil prices are is are up twelve percent in the last month. Yeah, and uh, so there know, it is. You know, Saudi wants a bigger part of that, but yes, and I think that's you know, it's funny. Back in the eighties, prices were set by. Um, by uh, producers. Um, well, actually, no, they were set by, let me look at this. I just want to, let me just jump in here, Richard, because I, I want to note that we did carry another report this week in the review that Goldman Sachs expects record demand in oil markets to drive crude prices higher. So demand is going to be going up. The quote they said, we expect pretty sizable deficits in the second half with deficits of almost 2 million barrels per day in the third quarter as demand reaches an all-time high. So that was said on CNBC. So that's interesting. So it's, you know. Well, in- yeah. And so to, to, to finish that thought, the yep. prices back in the 80s were set by exporters. Now it's set by futures markets. And I think the Saudis are, are trying to to put a floor on it. And we've talked about this before. They can't really do a ceiling, but they can provide a floor. I think they're trying to do a floor long enough for the for China's market to China's economy to, to to get past its doldrums and kick into gear and the global economy to pick up. And so that's their bet. So maybe they're, you know, they're they're probably, you know, they're planning to make hay when when the when the demand increases, which is probably a good bet. You just want to make sure you can get market share back. Yep. Richard, 96 in the books. 96 really, of the really 966. That's right. We'll have 97 next week. Richard teased it a little bit. We're going to keep it a secret, Jeez. but we have a, another truly great guest. Very awesome guest coming up next week. So make sure yes. that you stay tuned for that. But this week, we thank Amr Sheikh from PepsiCo Middle East. Thank you. Uh, that was fantastic. Awesome. And um, again, you can listen to these segments wherever you're getting your podcasts. You, the segments are on YouTube, but um, we are available as an audio wherever you get your podcast. So we appreciate everybody tuning in. So Richard, good stuff. Thank you so much. Good See you stuff. Next Thank you so much. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to our audience. We are we are lucky. We Shukran. Are yes, we are lucky. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Till next week. Till next week.